welcome to the second episode of the Scleroderma Education Podcast. Created by the Scleroderma Association of BC, this podcast aims to increase awareness and provide education for medical students and curious patients. Through this series, we hope to help our listeners gain a holistic understanding of scleroderma by learning from both patients and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Valerie Doyon. I'm a third-year UBC medical student and board member on the Scleroderma Association of BC. It is my pleasure now to introduce our two guests for this episode. Dr. Hain Kim is a rheumatologist with a specialization in scleroderma. She works at the VCH Mary Pack Scleroderma Clinic, as well as at the St. Paul's Hospital Scleroderma Lung Clinic. Angie Reglin is a patient living with scleroderma, and she volunteers her time as the Scleroderma Association of BC rep for Kelowna. Welcome both. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Valerie. So scleroderma is a multi-system disorder with multiple associated symptoms. On this episode, we'll focus on the most common presenting symptom of scleroderma, Raynaud's phenomenon. Classically in Raynaud's, there's an episodic reduction in the blood supply to the fingers in response to cold temperatures, causing a painful freezing attack. As they warm back up, the fingers turn from white to blue, then red. There's primary and secondary Raynaud's. 5 to 10% of the population has primary Raynaud's disease, which is bothersome, but harmless and not associated with any other medical problems. Secondary Raynaud's, often called Raynaud's phenomenon, is more concerning and is associated with diseases such as lupus and scleroderma. Dr. Kim, could you please describe the basic physiology of Raynaud's at a medical student level? And how does systemic sclerosis lead to Raynaud's phenomenon? Um, so, I mean, it is a complex mechanism. So there are several mechanisms that contribute to Raynaud phenomenon. One of the normal physiologic response to cold temperature is the reduction of blood flow to the skin to reduce the body heat loss and preserve the normal core temperature. Uh, Raynaud phenomenon is an exaggerated vascular response to the cold temperature or emotional stress at times. Um, with the cold temperature, the sympathetic nervous system causes the release of uh, vasoconstricting molecules, which then leads to vasoconstriction of the arterioles and decrease the blood flow to the skin. Um, also, there is some thought that there is a role of peripheral nervous system by releasing the vasodilating and vasoconstricting neuropeptides at the periphery itself as well. Uh, in a uh, Raynaud phenomenon, Local defects in the normal vascular response leads to uh, abnormality or imbalance between the vasoconstrictive and vasodilatory process. Um, as you mentioned earlier, we classify Raynaud into primary and secondary. And a primary Raynaud is the typically benign condition, usually starts in a young age, more common in female. Um, the Raynaud attacks in this uh, primary Raynaud are typically milder and uh, usually does not lead to ischemic complication or tissue damage. Uh, in, in this primary Raynaud, there's some uh, compelling evidence that the increased sensitivity to cold temperature is mediated in part by the um, alpha uh, abnormality or abnormal alpha adrenergic response, uh, particularly mediated by alpha two, uh, which are predominantly present in the distal arteries of the human extremities. And there's some roles of genetic components to it. Um, now in secondary Raynaud phenomenon, uh, as you may know, there's different etiologists and different reasons why patients can have Raynaud, uh, secondary Raynaud and different underlying disorders uh, disrupt normal vessel reactivity to cold temperature in different ways. 
um, particularly in, in scleroderma patients, it is thought that um, the fibrosis of the vascular system uh, leads to endothelial dysfunction, which then leads to abnormal vasoconstriction of digital and cutaneous vessels. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Angie, what are your typical attacks like? Um, my attacks are relentless. Uh, my fingers turn purple as soon as I get into any cold environment. And I react quickly when that happens because the pain starts shortly after. And luckily, my body uh, responds quickly. So when I warm up my hands under running water or rub them together, my body responds fast. And Right. So it sounds like your episodes happen multiple times a day, but now you've found ways to manage them and warm your fingers back up. Yes, it mm -hmm. does happen multiple times a day. Okay. Angie, if you think back, have you, have you always been sensitive to cold temperatures or how did this start for you? When I was first diagnosed, um, it was the Raynaud's that took me to the doctor, but I didn't know that, that it was Raynaud's. But afterwards, when I started thinking back, there was a few years before I was diagnosed, I noticed that um, my big toe would get a sore on it. And it would be so painful, I couldn't walk. I even went to a wound specialist clinic in Kelowna. They had no answers for me. And then um, another episode that I recalled later was my children and I went river rafting. And when we were done, my fingers were so cold, I couldn't undo my life jacket. And so my son had to undo my life jacket for me. Again, I didn't know what was going on and I didn't give it any thought. But after I was diagnosed and I learned about Raynaud's, I'm pretty sure now that those two things were like the start of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kim, I was just thinking back about what you were mentioning about alpha-2 receptors. And, and I'm just wondering, is it that the fingers and the nose and the toes are, are more affected because of the alpha-2 receptors, even in secondary Raynaud's phenomenon? Mm, good question. Um, so... So in, in patients with Raynaud, the vasoconstriction isn't just limited to the hands or feet or those periphery, um, but also there is a proximal arteries uh, involvement as well. However, um, I think the patients with Raynaud have more exaggerated or more, more dramatic drop in digital blood flow compared to the normal individuals um, due to that exaggerated vasoconstrictive response. And, and as you know, the Raynaud can also involve other areas. So other parts of uh, face, like ears, nose, uh, toes, uh, sometimes, sometimes nipples. So those are other areas that could be involved in Raynaud. So with the cold exposure, um, our, our natural thermoregulation works to preserve core temperature, as you mentioned, um, and, uh, and, maybe, and, and while reducing the blood flow to the periphery. And that may be why we get more Raynaud in the fingers. But also some evidence, there's some evidence that suggests that thermoregulation of skin occurs by these uh, numerous arteriovenous anastomosis, um, AVAs. And these uh, arteriovenous anastomosis are low resistant channels that allow shunting of blood flow 
from arterials to venous at a high flow rate. And so when, when there's a lot, you know, when you want to, uh, um, uh, get the heat out, uh, these uh, channels uh, dilate to, uh, to cause a dramatic heat loss in the periphery. Uh, when you're trying to heat, uh, preserve or preserve heat, um, it occurs through vasoconstriction of the peripheral circulation where these uh, um, AVAs are preferentially located. Um, AVAs are thought to be mainly localized in non-hairly non parts of the skin, so like palms and the sole of the feet. And so that could be another explanation as to why we get it more in the hands at feet rather than other parts of our body. Right. It sounds like based on my reading that, you know, it's not just if the, the extremities are exposed to the cold, but if the body in general becomes cold, mm -hmm. that can also trigger a Raynaud's attack. But would that attack be in the fingers always, or would it be in other locations in the body? For example, if you went out, you know, in a, in the winter and, you know, you had the warmest like gloves and, and yeah. boots on, but then you wore a tank top, would you get Raynaud's attack on your elbow? Like, Interesting. So I think that, um, so the stimulation or the initial stimulus that could re lead to rain out attack isn't just the periphery uh, temperature cold exposure. It's more the core body temperature that triggers the rain out phenomenon. So as you mentioned, even if you had your gloves all over or whatnot, if your core body temperature drops or if your core body senses that there is cold, then it will trigger a rain out phenomenon. Now, as to where the rain of phenomenon happens, even if the core body or your elbows exposed, it seems that the attacks happen mainly in periphery, like your hands and feet, uh, and, and not so much in the core, even if you're wearing a tank top. And, uh, and the reason for that is uh, thought that one, because the core body temperature leads to um, uh, sympathetic nervous system activation, which kind of clamps down the vasoc or uh, which clamps down vessels and lead to vasoconstriction. But vasoconstriction for some reason seems to happen more so in the periphery, such as your hands and feet. So uh, when it happens, it seems to affect your hands and feet more. And, and more to it, I guess, the more scientific sort of rationale as to why more so in hands and feet uh, probably is a sort of a complex uh, interaction between the neurons and uh, uh, other sort of stimulatory molecules, but also the fact that um, the heat regulation seems to happen more so with this uh, arteriovenous anastomosis, which seems to be present more so in the periphery. Okay. Does that make Interesting. sense? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and you mentioned that emotional triggers can also uh, trigger Raynaud's phenomenon. And, and I've seen that also physical triggers like vibrating tools and drills or repetitive hand motions, like playing the piano or typing can also cause Raynaud's phenomenon, which is so interesting. Uh, how, how do these things affect the blood vessels in your fingers? So emotional stress, I think that it can kind of lead to an stimulation of a sympathetic nervous system. And um, I think that can lead to similar sort of vasoconstrictive changes as in cold exposure. And uh, when we talk about more of the physical triggers, um, I've sort of briefly mentioned that there's some role of a peripheral nervous system in triggering the uh, Raynaud phenomenon as well. So even in the periphery, if there's a cold exposure and whatnot, uh, in the periphery, 
for a nervous system, there is a stimulus, sorry, uh, release of the molecules that can lead to vasodilation or vasoconstriction. So similarly, the physical triggers in the fingertips, such as vibration, uh, are thought to cause more direct peripheral neural dysfunction or direct damage to the vessel itself as well, some cases. Thank you. You're explaining a very complex phenomenon very well. <laughs> uh, Great. So Angie, have you been surprised by triggers unrelated to temperature? What was that like? Uh, the very first time I noticed it, I was having a very heated discussion with somebody and I happened to look down and my fingers were purple. And so the discussion ended abruptly and I put my hands under warm water until the color came back. And I didn't know what was happening, but I did know that day that stress was going to cause these reactions and it was going to be a big part of this disease I was just learning about. So I was very, very surprised. I, I don't even know if surprise is a strong enough word. <laughs> so Dr. Kim, thank you for explaining because I've never understood all these years what happens and why my fingers go purple when I'm upset. Mm -hmm. so thank you. Mm -hmm. No worries. And I think there's so much unknown still that we, we just, we're still finding new things every single time. <laughs> mm -hmm. The body does amazing things. It's, it's mm -hmm. incredible. Mm -hmm. so, so Dr. Kim, it, it sounds like Reno's is mostly a clinical diagnosis made based on the patient's description of their attacks. Do patients necessarily have to go through that classic sequence of white, then blue, then red for you to kind of nail that diagnosis? Uh, good question. And I think it probably differs who you talk to, to, you know, you talk to different rheumatologists, they'll give you sort of different definition as to what they truly believe is the true Raynaud. Um, I typically start with uh, more of an open ended question. I typically ask, does your do, do you, does your finger change color when you're in um, cold weather or when you're in different uh, temperature? And if the patient uh, truly has a Raynaud, uh, like Angie kind of described, they will describe more typical color changes uh, and uh, also very typical provoking factors. Um, and in some patients, it doesn't have to be that triphasic. Uh, to my sort of definition, I don't think everyone needs to have a triphasic color changes per se, but uh, typically I like to at least hear, you know, pallor or sort of blue or purple. Redness alone to me doesn't uh, give me a sense of vasoconstrictive phase. Like it, it kind of uh, gives more of a reworming phase, right? The vasodilatory phase that comes out after the uh, cold exposure. But that alone to me doesn't sort of uh, give me the clue of vasoconstriction phase. So I like to hear the other colors um, um, more than just the redness. You know, and it, as I mentioned, um, some patients uh, will have Raynaud phenomenon happening in the office right in front of my eyes sometimes. And that's sort of sometimes helpful. Um, and I have to keep, you know, temp put my temperature up in my office to make sure that they don't get uh, worse. Um, but uh, if I don't see that in the office, sometimes I ask patients to take picture when it happens. And it's quite helpful as well. Right. That's a good tip. Mm hmm. Is there any other clues on the history or physical exam that you use to kind of 
confirm the diagnosis? Do you routinely use those cold stimulation tests or nail fold capillaroscopy? Right. I think, you know, cold stimulation test is pretty cruel. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't usually do that. <laughs> I wouldn't do that in my office. Uh, but as I mentioned, some patients, even with the slightest temperature changes, they will have radon phenomena in my office. And, and that I, then I know. Um, Otherwise, uh, I do like to do uh, a nail fold uh, examination, and that's my routine uh, examination, routine part of my examination, um, as, uh, because abnormal nail fold capillary would point towards more of a secondary Raynaud phenomenon or connective tissue disease. For patients presenting with Raynaud's, I assume that practitioners should screen for autoimmune diseases causing secondary Raynaud's, such as lupus, scleroderma, or dermatomyositis. If the history and physical for these is negative, though, should primary care doctors still order an autoimmune workup for secondary causes of free notes? Good question. Um, it depends, I think. But um, I think before we even go to the autoimmune workup, um, I think one thing to know is that note is that the secondary Raynaud phenomenon is associated with variety of different underlying etiologists. It is probably most commonly associated with connective tissue disorders, such as scleroderma, lupus, Sjogren's, um, and et cetera. But um, there are other uh, etiologists, uh, for example, such certain medications, uh, certain drugs like cocaine can cause um, the vasoconstriction and lead to uh, you know, phenomena similar to Raynaud. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, the physical triggers or vib uh, vibrating machineries can cause it. Uh, often patients can have obstructive vascular disease from a variety of different reasons. So atherosclerosis or diabetic uh, angiopathy, microemboli sometimes, or even just the structure abnormalities in their vessels, um, uh, or sometimes thromboangitis, obliterance, which are often associated with smoking. Those are other structural abnormalities that can lead to phenomena similar to Raynaud. Um, sometimes certain metabolic disorders can cause it as well. I had a, a patient who had uh, uncontrolled thyroid disease uh, who had Raynaud phenomena, which got better once the thyroid disease got better. So uh, all of these things, in addition to chronic infection, hematologic abnormalities, those are some of the other rare uh, causes as well. So I think it's important to not just focus on autoimmune causes when we talk about Raynaud, but kind of opening up that uh, to more wide uh, uh, differential and screening for other things as well uh, by history and physical. And, and sometimes uh, laboratory investigation if needed. And if, you know, if, uh, uh, and that may include autoimmune sort of baseline autoimmune workup, such as ANA, I think it's reasonable to do it one time screening. Um, yeah. Okay, thank you for, for really emphasizing the other things on the differential mm -hmm. for secondary free notes. Mm -hmm. Is there any Raynaud's mimickers that we need to watch out for? Now, when we talk about mimickers, uh, to me, mimickers are things that causes changes in finger color, but not necessarily Raynaud color, right? Mm -hmm. um, so to mention a few examples, there are things like uh, erythromelargia, which is um, different from Raynaud. It, it tends to be more uh, redness of the finger color. It, it turns more red and typically in exposure to warmth rather than cold or a temperature change rather than cold exposure. Uh, sometimes it can be associated with underlying hematologic issue. Um, acrocyanosis uh, or other occlusive vascular disease as we talked about. So it may not be triphasic Raynaud, but more sort of basic persistent vasoconstriction due to occlusive disease. 
sometimes complex retinal pain syndrome can cause some discoloration of the hands that can look or that can be confused with uh, Raynaud. Um, rarely something called paroxysmal finger hematoma. So all of those things are uh, pot potential mimickers. Right. So it's not always a slam dunk diagnosis. We need to first make sure that it's true Raynaud's, then go on and try to categorize if it's primary or secondary with more history, physical and investigations. It, exactly. Could you talk briefly about Chalblains and how it relates to Raynaud's? Right. Um, Chalblains are, you know, it's probably a separate process. Um, you know, it's more of a painful inflammation of the blood vessels in sort of uh, in the peripheries. Uh, again, with response with uh, uh, ex exposure to cold or damp uh, conditions, typically, um, typically patients will report more of a itching or painful fingertips or toes with red patches or swelling or sometimes blistering in those areas, but it does look a bit different from Raina typically. And it typically is a bit longer lasting. It, it can you know, last for kind of weeks at time, days to weeks at a time before it kind of fully resolves. Uh, whereas Raina tends to be typically, you know, uh, several minutes, right? Less than an hour typically. And chilblains uh, aren't thought to result in permanent injury, uh, although if it's untreated, it can lead to tissue damage or it, it can lead to infection that can lead, uh, lead to a damage. The pathophysiology, again, is not very well understood uh, for chilblains, um, but it is thought that there is some association with vasospasm in exposure to cold and damp conditions. Some literature reports that it may be due to an abnormal vessel reactivity to cold exposure, but followed by the reworming uh, phase. Um, the reworming of the cold skin causes the small blood vessels under the skin to expand really quickly compared to nearby larger blood vessels um, uh, around that area. And this causes uh, somewhat of a bottleneck, bottleneck effect and uh, lead to the blood leaking into the nearby tissue. So that's kind of one of the hypotheses why the, or how the chilblain happens. Um, uh, and in chilblain, again, it, ca it can be primary or it can be secondary. And in secondary, it can be associated with connective tissue disease such as lupus or scleroderma. So in, in secondary cases, we can see Raynaud and chilblain in, uh, in the same patients with the same condition. So it sounds like it can occur, they can be occurring as completely mm -hmm. separate diseases. They can also occur as part of a larger connective tissue disorder, such as scleroderma. Exactly. Angie, I'd like to bring it back to you now. Um, and could you describe kind of in your own words, what your Raynaud's attack feel like to you? Painful, especially in the winter months when your hands are drier and Raynaud's um, happens more frequently, my fingers split. And so that is very painful. Um, I used to think before I was diagnosed that it was uh, paper cuts, but um, it's much more severe than that because the pain is intense and, and it's just a little tiny break in the skin. So just to clarify, it sounds like for you, your attacks feel more like like your skin is actually being split open or cut by a knife, like a paper cut. And because I've heard other patients talk more about a feeling of just being just completely frozen down to the bone. 
I suppose, um, because when I do get chilly, I, my whole body gets chilly and, and it happens quickly and everybody else in the house can be warm and comfortable, but all of a sudden I'm chilly and I'm grabbing a sweater or I'm turning up the heat because it, it, it does, um, the whole body gets cold quickly, but, but it is the fingers where the pain is. This sounds really difficult and really annoying. I mean, how does this affect your life? Um, I've been very, very fortunate because I was diagnosed so quickly. It was Raynaud's that took me to the doctor because I noticed I could only stay outside for about 10 minutes. And um, I work in an office atmosphere, so I type all day long. And I noticed on by the time I got to work, it would take a long time for my fingers to warm up so I could type. But I went to the doctor and said, I can't stay outside more than 10 minutes. Uh, it takes half an hour to be able to type when I get to work. And so I believe because of the severity of it, they diagnosed me rather quickly. And because of that, treatment started quickly. And I learned about scleroderma quickly. So the Raynaud's itself doesn't affect my life so much until the fingers start splitting. Mm -hmm. Then I can't type and then the pain is intense. And then even doing dishes hurts. Angie, for you, it sounds like your Raynaud's, you know, led to a quick diagnosis of scleroderma. Is that do you find that that's generally the case for other patients or is there quite a delay there? Sadly, there is a delay and, and it is unfortunate. And it's like Dr. Kim explained. And as you know, that Raynaud's can be primary or secondary. Um, but there's also other scleroderma symptoms that overlap other diseases such as lupus. So diagnosis is not always quick. And I've heard that from many patients. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Kim, what do you recommend primary care providers order as a workup for secondary causes of Raynaud's? Right. Um, so in terms of, uh, I guess, uh, assessment of the patients with Raynaud, as we mentioned, um, I think starting out with history and physical as, as always, right? Um, and for the secondary Raynaud, I think in history, I, I recommend screening for uh, not just the history about the, uh, not just the history of presenting illness, but making sure we talk about smoking history, uh, medications or drug use history, if there's been any new medications or even occupational exposure. So those, those sort of the social history aspect of it is quite important in these patients as well. Um, and uh, as for the work, uh, I'd recommend checking for normal blood counts, right? CBC differential to start with. Um, creatinine and renal function and thyroid hormone, um, chronic infection workup as a screening and uh, potentially baseline autoimmune workup with ANA, I think is pretty reasonable. Great. Thank you. Now, switching back to Angie here, I've heard that patients that sometimes they can even struggle just to go grocery shopping because it, without a helper, going to those freezer or those refrigerated aisles is just impossible for them and, and is sure to trigger an attack. Is that, does that happen for you? It did before I started wearing gloves to the grocery store. 
<laughs> right. Do people ever look at you funny with your gloves in the grocery store? No, not that I've noticed. But um, I I do wear light gloves, and it, it does protect my fingers, especially when I'm in the even the dairy aisle where the milk is. You know, I got to grab that milk, and um, you know, even walking around the store carrying the milk can bring on an episode. So I always have a buggy. I have the gloves that I can actually use on my phone because that's where my grocery list is. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, um, grocery stores and a lot of other stores, but grocery stores are cool. So, yeah, I I wear gloves and and, uh, I have a buggy so I don't have to carry the milk. Those are some good tips for, for patient listeners. Yeah. And for clinicians in terms of asking questions, the, these are typical quite a, you know, story that patients will uh, describe when I ask. Right. And so as a clinician, those are the things that we ask for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we have so much to learn from patients. This is, this is great. Mm-hmm. Angie, is there any other day-to-day tasks that you struggle to complete because of your renos? No, I've been very fortunate. The most debilitating is like last week, I had three split fingers. So so that does make it hard to do anything. But Mm -hmm. once they heal, I'm back to normal. Right. And just to clarify, when you talk about split fingers, you're actually talking about an actual fissure or or cut in the skin. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. And those are triggered and directly caused by your Raynaud's attacks in those digits. And yes. And so I use um, good hand creams and I try to keep my hands moist or moisturized. Do you ever use anything else like uh, those, those uh, you know, hand warmers or those like fancy, uh, like electronic, you know, heated gloves or things like that? <laughs> I don't because um, I have uh, sheepskin mitts. And if it's too cold for those, it's too cold for me. <laughs> like I just won't go outside. <laughs> so I went out today and it's my first time in five days. Wow. I just don't go outside. It's not good for me. That's fair. Well, you must have someone, someone else to go in and shovel the driveway, right? My husband. <laughs> He's very understanding. And yes, he does. Nice. Do you have any other tips to share for fellow clinicians and patients listening about how to best manage or curb the the attacks? I overdress when I go out. And uh, if I'm going visiting, I always take a sweater and slippers with me. And I actually have a motto whenever I go out. It is, I would rather have to take my coat off than wish I had it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, more often than not, my husband will say, do you really think you need that today? It's like, I don't know, but I'm not going to be halfway down the street and wish I had it. I'm not going to risk it. No. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my friend made these for me and they're fingerless knits. Mm-hmm. And so that helps me when I'm typing in my study. It helps keep my hands a little bit warmer. Mm-hmm. I have rice bags. I heat them up all the time and I either wrap my hands around them or wrap them around my feet. Um, I have a space heater in my study. 
I wear gloves, even if I'm going down to my own freezer. Yeah, I think those would be the six or seven things that I could suggest that you could do on a daily basis to stay warm. That's really helpful. Thank you. Dr. Kim, what are some first-line medications that you use for Reno's phenomenon? So Angie sort of talked about more of a conservative uh, management options, like lifestyle changes. Um, And before, I guess, I start thinking about medication, I also have to assess the severity and frequency and complication of um, the attacks to kind of guide further management decisions. So um, like Angie said, you know, some patients will have lifestyle that they get really affected. Uh, I had a patient who works in the grocery store. That was her job. And in in her case, um, with all the conservative management, she just couldn't really avoid that um, aspect of it, right? So that certainly affects her uh, lifestyle and daily life uh, activities or function. Uh, I had another patient who was an avid skier in winter. And so during the winter, during the summer months, she was totally fine. But in, when the winter comes, that was one thing that she really, really wanted to do and loved to do. And certainly that was uh, uh, not being controlled with just the lifestyle changes. So once we have some idea as to how severe and compl- complex her uh, disease is, then we talk about medication options. Uh, in terms of the first line management, I will typically start with uh, calcium channel blockers. And uh, many of the patients with Raynaud would have uh, either been on it or have heard of it. Um, so things like uh, nifedipine or amlodipine are first sort of a few medications that I would use as uh, first line. Um, and some patients uh, do very well with it, but some patients may have uh, side effects or have a refractory uh, uh, disease despite uh, calcium channel blockers. Then we go on to things like um, uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitor medication, such as sildenafil, and uh, it could be used as, in, as a combination uh, in conjunction with calcium channel blocker if the patient had a partial response to calcium channel blocker, but not so much enough fully, then sometimes I add uh, the, the uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitor as a combination therapy. Uh, or monotherapy. Um, in some patients, if, uh, if they have a, a few digits that are particularly refractory, or if patient can't tolerate systemic medication due to side effects, uh, then I can uh, sometimes, cons- I sometimes consider topical vasodilator medications such as uh, topical uh, nit- uh, nitroglycerin or topical sildenafil cream that you sort of apply at the base of the fingers um, to kind of uh, open up the vessels there. Once patients are more refractory, or if they have more severe ischemic complication, uh, such as finger ulcers uh, or severe pain, uh, then we talk about more advanced therapy. So bosentin is an uh, an endothelin blocker, and it's an oral medication, and it can be used in some very severe refractory cases, although the coverage for this medication uh, currently in BC is a bit challenging. Um, and obviously if someone has really severe disease with really active ulcers or necrotic fingers, lots of ischemic uh, complications, then, then certainly we talk, we think about IV infusion of prostaglandin, uh, for these patients. And typically these patients will have to be admitted to the hospital, uh, for a few days to get this IV infusion. So those are things uh, that we talk about in terms of medication or medical therapy, um, and, and once those 
are, you know, uh, once if the patients are still refractory to these medical therapies, then we go on to consider some of the intervention therapy or even surgical procedures for these patients. There are um, uh, sympatectomy, so hand surgeons will sometimes do sympatectomy. Uh, some, uh, or in, in our center, we don't do it as much, but uh, some literature suggests possibly Botox injections in some cases. Um, some patients undergo surgical therapy with sort of, I think what they call arterialization of venous system. Uh, and hand surgeons will do uh, uh, surgical options for very refractory cases. And uh, I've seen some good outcomes in very severe uh, Raynaud uh, uh, disease patients. Angie, it sounds like you had something like that, some sort of arterial reconstruction surgery with artery graft. Can you tell us about that? Um, it was shortly after I was diagnosed. There was very little blood and oxygen going to the end of my fingers. And so uh, there was discussions about amputation. He did talk to me about surgery and uh, it was literally uh, changing uh, the direction of the blood flow. So he attached my artery to a vein in hopes of pushing the blood to the end of the fingers. And he did it on both hands. And it did work to a certain point. The veins got very big. And um, after six years, we actually had to reverse it. But however, in saying that, it opened things up. So the veins started working again. So even though today I still suffer from Raynaud's, uh, the ulcers or the split fingers aren't as bad as they used to be. And we no longer have those amputation discussions. So in my opinion, it was a success. <laughs> And it's still benefiting you today. So that's, that's awesome to hear. Is there anything else that you feel that we haven't really had a chance to touch upon during this podcast or that you'd like to really emphasize with our listeners? Dr. Kim touched on our organs and um, our core. And that was probably one of the first things my rheumatologist taught me was if my core gets cold, it's going to pull the blood from my extremities because that really is the start of our body reacting to protect our organs. Right. Yeah. I think that's the pearl here for sure. That's not something that I feel like for most patients, if they have cold hands, they probably think, Oh, gloves will do it, but it's, it's more than that. It's really core body temperature. Mm -hmm. Right. And I just wanted to go back and maybe mention about what Angie had uh, sort of uh, touched on earlier that Raynaud that, that there is a significant delay of the diagnosis after the onset of Raynaud phenomenon in patients with scleroderma or other um, connective tissue disease. But I think it is also, we know that Raynaud tends to be the first manifestation of scleroderma in many patients. And many patients do not develop other symptoms of scleroderma or connective disease for quite some time after. Although in some patients, they can develop quite uh, uh, close together, but some patients will have several years uh, before they start developing. So as a clinician, I think, you know, it is okay to, uh, to uh, uh, feel that there's no evidence of secondary 
uh, um, Raynaud, or, or there's no evidence of secondary underlying systemic disease at the time of initial Raynaud. Uh, assessment. If they don't have other assess other you know symptoms to say connective tissue disease or other abnormalities to suggest uh, other metabolic disorder or any other secondary issues, that I think that is fine. It just means that we just uh, follow up uh, with these patients and reassess after a while. It, things change every year, right, or every month. So I think as a clinician, I think it's just important for us to have that in our mind that you know maybe right now is just it may appear to be a primary or not, but maybe things change. Um, in some patients, they have maybe you know highly positive ANA, ANA uh, with nothing else, and maybe I follow them a bit more closely, or you know uh, once in a while just to make sure that they don't develop any other symptoms to suggest uh, connective tissue disease. And even though there may be a delay in diagnosis, typically the scleroderma or connective tissue disease, we treat them based on the uh, clinical manifestation, especially in, in scleroderma. If the Raynaud is the only thing they come up uh, with uh, at the time of initial assessment, we, we treat Raynaud and, and we monitor until there's something else, right? So I think we have time to uh, sort of follow along and figure the, the diagnosis out, but we'll just kind of keep on managing the Raynaud and, and right. monitor. So I guess your message as a rheumatologist for people in general practice or not in rheumatology is just to just to follow mm -hmm. up on your patients in a few, every few years, just to make sure that they're not developing an autoimmune mm -hmm. disease and we want to catch those early. Yeah. Even if it looks like primary, it doesn't hurt to reassess things. Okay. Well, we'll wrap up here. Thank you so much both for taking part and, and sharing your wisdom. Um, Angie, thank you so much for sharing just how, how this affects your life. And, and you have so many great tips to share for our listeners. That's amazing. Um, and Dr. Kim as well, you, you have such a wealth of knowledge uh, on, on the pathophysiology of this really complex phenomenon. And I thank you for that. Thank you for inviting me. It was uh, great to chat with you. And also, Angie, it was great to kind of hear things from patients' perspective as well. So thank you both for, uh, uh, for the show today. Thank you, Valerie, for, for doing this and getting more information out to the public, because I think it's important. We, we need to have hope that medicine and research is going to find a cure. And I really appreciate all your knowledge, Dr. Kim. I learned more today than I have in a long time. So thank you both. I, I really enjoyed this. Please note that the opinions expressed on the Scleroderma Education Podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare provider if you have any concerns about your health.